0: Good morning, Church. This week's passage is Exodus 1-2, to and it's set nearly 3,000 years ago in Egypt, in the time of the Pharaoh. Before I read the passage, we're going to head back even further in time to um, God's call of Abraham in Genesis 12, uh, verse 1-3. to Let me read this. And that can be found on page 15 on your Pew Bibles. That's what Jeff said. The Lord has said to Abraham, Go from your country your people, and your father's house, uh, household to the land, I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, let us look at today's um, second Bible, uh, second reading ec- on Exodus chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 10. That's on your Pure Bible, page 78. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generations died. But the Israelites were exceeding fruitful. They multiplied greatly. Increase in numbers and become so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must must deal shortly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, We'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pothom and Remis as store cities for pharaohs. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to drag the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their life bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her leave. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys leave. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwife and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys leave? The midwife answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwife, and the people increased and become even more numerous. And because the midwives fear God, He gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw them you must throw into the now. But let every girl live. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When when she saw he was a fine child, she did him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a pepper basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. "'This is one of the Hebrew babies,' she said." When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughters, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water.
1: Thanks, Wheeling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Thanks Thanks that it's been written down to teach us of what you are like and what you're doing in your world. So we pray this morning, show us how every part of your world of your word, points us to your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Alrighty, can I ask you please to take out the leaflet that you were given as you came in. Uh, you'll see inside, as usual, a reasonably detailed outline of what I'm going to speak about today, so you'll want to have that in front of you. There's a couple of other uh, passages there that will be relevant as we make our way through the first of these talks in the book of Exodus. Well, the book of Exodus is one of the great epic sagas in the Bible. Uh, It taps into the eternal conflict between good and evil, uh, the struggle between light and darkness, as it explores the grand sweeping themes of oppression and suffering and hope and redemption, and above all, glorious final deliverance. Uh, It is, of course, the story of Moses and Pharaoh. It's the story of God's incredible rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, The word Exodus literally means going out. It's the story of how God brings his people out of Egypt from being slaves to being free. And it's the story of God's, it's the story of the giving of God's life giving law and his unmerited favor granted on a people who, to be honest, never deserved it. It is what we Christians call all about grace. In the book of Exodus, we're going to see signs and wonders as God steps into history to show us what he is like and why he is worthy of our consideration and ultimately of our praise. And so, Exodus is going to be a tale for all those times in your life when you wished that God would intervene, that God would just do something To confirm that he's still there, to reassure us that he loves us, that we might know that he hears us, even in our doubts and fears. But before we dive into this magnificent episode in world history, uh, we actually need the prequel. Exodus, of course, the second book of the Bible, Uh, but the scene has been set on a more cosmic scale in the first book. In Genesis. It's kind of like when you're watching a TV show and at the start of the episode, it, the voiceover comes over and says, Previously, and tells you what's happened before. That's what we're going to see today in verses Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. So come with me on your handout to point one, in the beginning, Genesis 1 through 50. In the beginning. Now, the backstory to Exodus is summarized in uh, the Bible timeline diagram that I've put there for you on your handout. If you have a look at it, it's trying to show the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, And in particular, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, is divided into two parts. You've got Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12 through 50. Genesis 1 through 11, this is the left-hand column, here we see God's creation, the making of Adam and Eve, the placing them in the Garden of Eden. Tragically, within just a few chapters, we see the fall. We see Cain and Abel. We see humanity's descent through to the flood and Noah's Ark. And it culminates in the extraordinary hubris of all of humankind at the Tower of Babel. They say, come, let's build a tower to the heavens so we make our name for ourselves that will last forever. The turning point in Genesis comes in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Because in 12 through 50, what we see is God's redemption plan begin to focus in on just one individual, on a guy called Abram. Genesis 12, one through 3, it's critical for the rest of the Bible because here God promises that through one man, through Abram, he will reverse all the effects of the fall and he will restore all of creation to its original splendour and glory. Look with me again at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is the first reading that Fueling brought for us. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See what God is promising to do through this one man, Abram? To give him a land, to make him a great nation, and to bless him. And through him, to bless all the nations of the world. And so the story continues through Genesis 12 through 50. It moves from Abraham to his son Isaac, from Isaac to his son Jacob, from Jacob to his 12 sons, including Joseph. And in the midst of a global food shortage, the family is forced to flee to Egypt just to survive. This is where Exodus is going to open. The thing is, even as they move further away from the land that God promised them, still... They haven't stepped outside of God's plans. He has not forgotten them one bit. Genesis 46, i printed there for you on your handout. Here's what God says to the family as they make their way to Egypt. Genesis 46, verse 2, God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Can you see how the Genesis backstory sets the scene for the problem that Exodus will open with? God's people outside of the land that He's promised them, but still far from being blessed. And we're going to come to Exodus in just a moment. Before we do, let me just say at this point that uh, here's the big idea that I want you to take from today's talk. The big idea for today, knowing the overall story of the Bible is what helps us make sense of any individual part. Knowing the overall story of the Bible is what helps us make sense of any individual part. It's actually the key to understanding the relevance of the Bible, and in particular, the relevance of the Old Testament to us today. So, for example, one of the questions that Christians often have is, has God given up on Old Testament Israel? Or, to put it slightly differently, should we be campaigning for a modern-day Israel? Well, let me say that, um, according to Genesis 12, God always had more than just a land flowing with milk and honey for Israel on view. God's plan was always to bless all the peoples of the earth through this one family, which, of course, is a tremendous relief for pretty much all of us here, given that none of us have Hebrew ancestry. We're going to see, in fact, that what God begins in Abraham in in Exodus with the baby Moses, a baby who was born to rescue Israel from slavery, we're going to see it reach its glorious fulfillment with. Another baby born to save us from sin and death. You and I, we belong to a bigger and better story. We belong to a bigger and better story. And today, we start our journey to see a little more of what that looks like. Uh, You'll see there in your handout that there's a reference to further reading. I'm going to talk about this book at the end, but let me just say something about it now. The book is called God's Big Picture. It's by a fellow called Vaughan Roberts, uh, tracing the storyline of the Bible. Um, I've found this to be one of the most helpful resources in trying to understand the overall picture so that I can make sense of any particular part. It doesn't explain every part of the Bible, but it tells you and shows you how the whole thing fits together. And uh, I was going to say I'd love to sell you a copy afterwards, but I sold every single copy to the 9amers already. (laughs) I said to them, The other guys can order it online. Um, So you can do it yourself. But this book, I'm going to come back and say something about it at the end as well. God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts. Okay, come with me then to point two on your handout, A New King to Whom Joseph Meant Nothing. A New King to Whom Joseph Meant Nothing, Exodus chapter one. Uh, We pick up the story then in Exodus. God's people, Abraham's descendants... They are in Egypt. It is clearly not the land that God has promised him. If you look there at the start of chapter 1, according to verses 1 through 5, there are now 70 in their little clan. That hardly constitutes a great nation yet. But God's promises to bless Abram's descendants, they're not going to be hindered or thwarted in any way. So, verses 6 and 7, look with me, verse 6 and 7. Joseph and all his brothers in that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers. It became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, if those words there, they became fruitful, multiplying greatly, increasing number, filling the land, if they sound familiar, if they sound like Genesis 1.28, I take it that's no coincidence. You see here that this one family is starting to grow towards that great nation God said they would be. And in fact, the years pass. If you're wondering how many, well, according to Exodus 12, verse 40, it's there on your handout, it's over 400 years. During that time, Abram's descendants grow to be more than, Exodus 12, 37 tells us this, more than 600,000 men, let alone women and children. This is on a trend towards being a great nation. One of the things that uh, these opening verses of Exodus 2 remind us is that if a 400-year time frame hasn't compromised God's plans, you know, a thousand years is like a day for the creator of all things who stands outside of linear time. If 400 years hasn't compromised God's plans, I think it's meant to gently prod us prod us in our impatience to ask us, how long are we willing to wait for God's intervention or not, as is usually the case? Has God forgotten the promises to his people? Well, at one level, they are starting to grow, they are more numerous, but the big problem is they don't have a land. They don't have a land of their own and Actually, many of us here know how tenuous it can be to rent, to not own your property. Sure enough, things eventually go bad for the immigrants. In verses 8 through 14, uh, we read how their landlords, the Egyptians, they brutally oppressed them when a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power. The change of regime fueled, perhaps, by a rising tide of nationalism, maybe growing anti-foreigner sentiment. Uh, They're taking our jobs, they're impeding our livelihood. The new king sentences the entire Hebrew people to servitude and makes them all slaves. Verse 11. Here's the thing, though. Look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread. Because do you honestly think that this new king can stop God? That he can thwart God's promises or derail the plans that God has hundreds of years invested in? So in verses 15 through 22, the king goes further. Not just servitude, but genocide. Genocide he orders the death of every he orders the hebrew midwives to kill all the hebrew baby boys and so to wipe the name to wipe the race from the face of the earth once again do you think this will be too much for god to handle of course not and yet still we find ourselves wondering Has God forgotten his people? I say that because so far in Genesis, uh, in Exodus, chapter 1, well, actually, God is hardly mentioned. In fact, the first reference to God comes in verse 17. Verse 17. "The, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. Now, the Hebrew midwives... Only two are named in verse 15, Shifra and Pua. Can I say, we can pretty confidently assume there were more than two Hebrew midwives, given there's 600,000 men plus women and children, but I guess they're meant to be representative of all of them. This is the part where this great epic, this drama, well, it actually has humour in it as well. Um, I was uh, scanning through the TV the other day and I discovered there's a new category of TV show. It's called a dramedy. Have you seen this? It's a drama plus a comedy. And I reckon that's exactly what Exodus is. Because I just love the reply that the Hebrew midwives give to Pharaoh in verse 19. You know, clearly they're going to be petrified, right? They've been called to answer to the guy who's just ordered the death of every Hebrew baby boy. But I love their cheeky insubordination. Verse 19. Here's my paraphrase. Uh, Sorry, sir. Hebrew mothers just want to get labor over and done with. So... (laughs) <laughs> the babies come before we can get there. Now, as an aside, and this is not the main idea of the passage, but it's worth me commenting on, ordinarily, as Christians in the world, we are to submit to our national leaders. In fact, we're urged to pray for our leaders because they'll answer to God for their conduct. And yet, in extreme circumstances, civil disobedience is called for. When the government acts in a way that's contrary to God's clear purposes for his people. Now, I don't want to distract us by trying to give us particular examples today. I just want to say, as we've seen with the Hebrew midwives, sometimes it's expected, although it's always a last resort. It's always a last resort. Pharaoh's response, this is what closes chapter 1 for us, well, Pharaoh widens the kill order. He gives it not just to the Hebrew midwives. Verse 22, he now gives the order to all his people to throw every Hebrew baby boy into the Nile. Isn't that horrific? This is a state-sponsored vigilantism. Could you imagine what it would be like to live in that kind of society. And yet, nothing can hinder God's promises to bless Abraham and his descendants. Because as we're about to discover, the mighty Pharaoh has a problem within his own household. Exodus chapter two. 2, point 3 on your handout, over on the right-hand side. Unto us, a child is born. God hasn't forgotten his people in Egypt because God hasn't forgotten his promises to Abraham. But he does have a rather unorthodox solution. See, God's solution to the problem caused by Pharaoh is not to immediately punish Pharaoh for his crimes against humanity. Can I say, that's what I would have done if I were God? God as usual, a good reminder that it's probably a good thing that I'm not. But you see, God's plan is far more epic. God's plan is slower. It takes longer. God's plan is more fraught with danger, as he graciously gives Pharaoh countless opportunities to repent and to avoid the consequences of his actions. But when God's plan comes to fruition... It means that its eventual success will glorify him even more. Again, as a slight aside, we're going to return to this idea later in this series. But can I say, even now, when judgment does fall on Pharaoh, it will be harsh, it will be brutal, in fact, but it will be entirely deserved. No one will ever be able to say God didn't warn Pharaoh of the consequences of his actions. Ten plagues constitute more than adequate warning. No one will ever be able to accuse God of being unfair. No one can ever claim that the judge of all the earth did not do what was right. Not when he holds the Egyptians to account for slavery and genocide. Well in chapter 2 the action zooms in. It zooms in on one single Hebrew family. And it zooms in on a little boy and the incredible way in which he is saved from Pharaoh's death sentence, in fact is adopted into Pharaoh's own household. He becomes a prince of Egypt. Interesting, once again in chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 God is not mentioned, not once. God is not mentioned, but it's clear God is the one orchestrating events from behind the scenes down to the tiniest details. Look at some of the things that stand out. In verses 1 through 2, we're told a Levite man marries a Levite woman and they have a fine son. We're not told any of their names, as if to contrast the insignificance of this little Hebrew family with the all-powerful Egyptian king. And so, after three months, they can't keep their secret any longer. And at this point, the mother carefully places their baby boy into the Nile. Notice, she doesn't throw him in, as Pharaoh had commanded. Like the the midwives, actually, she too is defiant of the king. Actually, she puts him, verse 3, in a papyrus basket coated with tar and pitch. If your Bible's open, you'll see there's a little footnote there down the bottom, and I've given you the reference there for you on your handout as well. The word for basket is exactly the same word as ark from Genesis 6. I take it that's no accident. I take it it's meant to deliberately invoke the image of a lifeboat. A hint that this awful day will not end with another appalling tragedy. So the baby's older sister, she sticks around to watch. I guess that's because mum was too distraught to see what happened to her child. Which, of course, is all just as well because, like I said before, there's no surprises. God is orchestrating things here. Pharaoh's own daughter just happens to pass by at that exact moment. And she finds the basket. It's very clear from verse 6. She knows it's a Hebrew baby boy. Who else would who else would allow their child to be put there? But we're told that she feels sorry. She feels a compassion that her father does not. And so, to continue the theme here, she also defies her father's edict. She rescues the baby. Isn't that extraordinary? God is now protecting his people by using the daughter of the one who's trying to kill them. And at this point, the baby's sister just happens to pop up and very shrewdly offers to Pharaoh's daughter, Would you like me to find someone to look after the baby for you? And so she goes and gets the baby's mother. and this is the best part of all, is now going to get paid to raise her own son. I mean, this is government benefits to the best, right? All under the protection of Pharaoh's own daughter. How wonderful. And so the episode will close in verse 10 with the baby being taken to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopts him as her own son, right in the middle of the palace, right under Pharaoh's nose, And finally, we're told his name. It's Moses. With God clearly orchestrating every single detail, surely we can't wait to see what he is going to do through this baby boy. And if you want to find out, come back next week. Well, where we're going to finish today is by returning to the big idea that I alluded to earlier. Big idea, I think, for us in the start of this series, you'll see there on your handout, we belong to a bigger and better story. We belong to a bigger and better story. A clue, of course, lies in the title that I gave, section three. I called it, Unto Us a Child is Born, because just as God acted through Moses to save his people, so it points us to the way in which God will act again through Jesus to save all the nations of the earth. Actually, it's Matthew in his account who draws the parallels in ways that you just can't miss. What I've done there is I've printed for you a comparison between Exodus and Matthew, between Moses and Jesus, and I just want to take you through some of these because it makes the point for us ever so clearly... You see, in Exodus, we see God sends a saviour for his people, the baby Moses. Just as in Matthew, we see God send a saviour, his son, the baby Jesus. Pharaoh tries to kill all the baby boys in Egypt. Herod tries to kill all the baby boys in Jerusalem. Israel eventually will come out of Egypt in the Exodus, just as baby Jesus will return from Egypt, having fled there to escape Herod. And in due course, we'll see Israel emerge from the Red Sea, just as Jesus, at the start of his ministry, is baptised in the Jordan. He comes out of the water and is anointed to be the Son of God. Israel will go into the wilderness and be tested 40 years, just as Jesus, in Matthew 4, is tested 40 days. Whilst there, Israel will survive on manna, on bread that appears miraculously from heaven each day. Jesus, well, Jesus is the one who can feed the 5,000 with just five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Uh, The great high point of Exodus is when the law is given at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. By contrast, Jesus, in his first public sermon, from the Mount... He will restate and reshape and reframe the law, how we are to live. Tragically, Israel, as we know, eventually will bow down before a golden calf. Jesus, on the other hand, he will never bow down to Satan. And uh, as, you will, as we'll discover in a few weeks' time, it is the Passover lamb's blood that will spare Israel So, we see in Matthew 26, Jesus' blood will save many. As through Moses, just very partially, so through Jesus, but in completely spectacular array, there will always be opposition to God's people because a cosmic battle is taking place. There's full of twists and turns, there's ups and downs, But God will prevail, God will even use the evil intentions of His opponents to achieve His purposes, because nothing will thwart His plans, nothing will hinder His promise to bless Abraham and his descendants, and through them, all the peoples of the world. In fact, Matthew's Gospel starts and ends making that exact point, that we belong to a bigger and better story. See, Matthew chapter 1, there on your handout, it starts by tracing Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Abraham. And Matthew 28 will conclude with the risen Jesus sending his disciples to make disciples of all the nations of the world. What does it all mean for us? A couple of things by way of application. First is this. If you're a Christian person, if you're a Christian person, can I say this is how we know who we are? This is how we know what our place is in the is in the world. Is it because you and I belong to a bigger and better story? We belong to a bigger and better story, and that's how we make sense of the ups and downs of life, of the highs and the lows of the struggles and disappointments. It's how we understand what's going on even when we are persecuted by our world, like those Hebrews were back in Egypt. You and I, we belong to a bigger and better story. It's a story that God has written, that God is telling, and that God will bring to completion. What I want to say to us today is that if you're a Christian, knowing that story is what sustains us day by day. It's what motivates us to want to learn more about that story, to dwell on it, so that we might tell it to others over and over and over again. As you know, I'm always urging us as a church family to be reading the Bible for ourselves, to not be dependent on others to teach it to us, to be like the Bereans. The thing is that in our church family, I reckon actually that's what most of us want to do. We do want to listen to God speak. But it seems to me that more often than not, what stops us from reading our Bibles ourselves is that full of good intention, we start reading it until we come to a part that we can't understand and we struggle on manfully as long as we can persist until we give up and we have a little less confidence to try again in the future. You're probably aware that Genesis, Exodus, the next book of the Bible is Leviticus. I don't know about you, but even I, I get to it and I think, really, what's all this about? How is this relevant to me? The answer is, it is all part of God's bigger and better story. And so, back again to what I said earlier, this is the reason why I'm recommending books like God's Big Picture because what they're trying to do is help us understand how all of it fits together so that any particular part is something that can nourish and feed us and encourage us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. Here's the second thing I want to say in terms of application, and it's particularly to those of us here today who aren't Christian... If that's your situation, well, I simply want to invite you to dive into this bigger and better story. Come with us and dive into this bigger and better story because, to be perfectly honest, there is nothing grander and there is nothing else that will make sense of this world. What I'm doing is inviting you to become part of a divinely orchestrated drama that will come to fruition. And we in this church, we just don't want anybody to miss out. You'll see on the screen behind me, there's a slide uh, that's talking about Explore. Explore is a course that we run throughout the year. It goes for four weeks at a time where people who aren't Christian can come along and ask any question they have at all or just listen to other people's questions to try and explore the Bible, to hear more of this bigger and better story, to find out if Jesus is who he claims to be. Because we think he is and he changes everything. So if that's your situation, you'll see the next of these courses is coming up in a few weeks. Again, just let us know and we'd love to invite you. Well, I think at this point I'm going to close for us in prayer. So will you join me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done in your world to glorify your Son. Thank you for this bigger and better story that we belong to. We pray that uh, you might, in your grace and mercy, help us to see more clearly what you're doing in your world and what you're doing in us And so give us confidence each day to continue to look to you and to your Son, our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.